You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. We are going through a series we're calling Gospel Culture. I started talking about this last week. Um, the beauty of doing a series is that you get to say those things you thought about. Oh man, I wish I had shared that. Or you get to pause a little longer on an idea and share it. And the idea that we're working with in gospel culture is that gospel truth is something not just to be heard and believed, but it's something to be believed and practiced. That it actually is supposed to affect the way that we live and the way we function as a community. That gospel truth builds gospel culture, and gospel culture expresses gospel truth. And we read last week from Galatians 2, verse 11 to 21, and we're going to read it again this week because we just kind of scratched the surface of it last week. But there's a key phrase in it that Paul says that he noticed that some people were not walking in line with the gospel. Or another translation says that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And there was this idea that he's working with that he expected to see a certain um, behavior and culture among the church because of the truth of the gospel. And he saw some people that were dear to him not acting in accordance to that truth. And therefore he calls them out. And the reason we're talking about gospel culture in this season is because I really believe that we will not see the truth of the gospel displayed to anyone as beautiful and liberating and as transformative as it really is without it manifesting how we live and how we function as a community. And so we are, we are hoping and praying and believing for this gospel culture. But we're not just wanting like gospel culture over and above gospel truth. The two have to work together. You toss the gospel truth out the window and the gospel culture unravels. They support one another, right? I said it already, I'll say it again. Gospel truth builds gospel culture, but gospel culture expresses gospel truth. So there's our review. I'm going to read this scripture again this week, and then we'll jump off from there. This is Galatians 2, verse 11 to 21. This is Paul writing. Cephas, the name Cephas, maybe you're not familiar with, that is Peter who walked very closely with Jesus. Another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you catch that? By the works of the law, no one will be justified. He like drives it home three times in the same verse. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, <clears throat> sorry, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what we see going on in this story is that these Jewish Christians began to draw back and pull away from these non-Jewish Christians when certain men from James, they're referred to, came to this church in Antioch. Right? They, they stopped eating at the same table with them. They began to distance themselves. This sense of superiority because of their Jewish heritage began to set in and affect the way that they were relating to their non-Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul was, was not excited about this, was not happy about this. And I want to point something out, guys, that these people we're reading about in this story, Paul and Peter and Barnabas, these are not like newbie believers. I said last week, this quote from Tim Keller, he says the gospel is slippery. It's easy to lose hold of it. It's easy to kind of get off track either into this, you know, liberality where you just think, well, it's all grace and, you know, my behavior doesn't matter or this other Religious legalism we like to come back into. The gospel can be slippery that even these early church leaders were losing hold of it. Like this is Peter, who was, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, who less than 20 years after Jesus' departure is losing track of this. This is a pillar in the church. And I find it interesting, you know, I ask you this question. What were early church leaders willing to fight over? There's a fight going down in this story. You catch that, right? He's like, I confronted him to his face. I confronted him in front of them all, is what Peter, Paul says. What were early church leaders willing to fight for? Unity. They were willing to go to bat for unity. They were willing to fight for the unity of the church. I just think this is, is what we need. We need this alive in our church communities today. This fierce determination that we will be united in love for Jesus, in faith in Jesus. 
And I think sometimes because of our contextual distance from this story and a lot of the writings of the New Testament, we lose sight of how massive this is, what they were doing. The implications of it, like when we read words like Jew and Gentile, it kind of maybe doesn't hit us the same way that it did for them back then. Even for us today, we have ingrained in us as a people that racism is bad. We accept that truth. And so the significance of what's going on here maybe doesn't hit us. I mean, they were, they were pulling together communities of people from cultures that were just starkly opposed to one another, not commonly fraternizing with one another. And, and Paul, that's why he gets so intense about this. This matters. Your willingness to sit at the table with these people is crucial for the gospel going forth into the world. So maybe Jew and Gentile doesn't mean much to us today. Think of it in these terms. We are uniting churches of conservatives and liberals. You know, we are taking people of starkly different political views, social views, and trying to come together and live as one because Jesus is enough. Jesus and his beauty and his goodness and the gospel itself is enough glue to hold it all together. And so we are here, like even maybe, maybe you are in a place where you are, you know, adamantly, fiercely committed to that everybody needs to be vaccinated or you're fiercely committed to that I will not be, you know, like people get really intense on either side of it. We can love one another. Jesus is enough. And I notice when I look at this story that Paul wrestled with the truth before going after behavior. Like he doesn't just get up and say, Peter, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, but Peter, you shouldn't do that. Peter, you should be more like me, behave more like me. No, he holds the truth of the message of the gospel up. And he says, we even those of us who are Jews, born Jews, know that we are not justified by works of the law. We are justified by faith in Christ. And I feel like last week, this is why we're, we're looking at this again, because last week we just scratched the surface on this idea of being justified by faith. And that's what I want to focus a bit more on today. You know, sometimes we hear these words in Scripture like the word justified, and even that feels maybe a little irrelevant to us. Some translations will interpret that same Greek word that here was justified as considered righteous. But even again, the word righteous is kind of this traditional religious word that we don't use a lot in our everyday vocabulary. And I sometimes think today we would do well to replace it simply with the word rightness. Even if you want to go further, it's like just right, good. We want to appear good before God, before people. We want to appear in right standing, doing the right thing before God, before people. We want to be considered righteous. We want to be justified in our behavior. Maybe another way to help think about justification would be this, is that justification doesn't actually mean that 
the sin itself doesn't exist. The way we've, our wrongdoing hasn't happened. But it's that God has a new perspective of us. He sees us differently. Maybe to help illustrate the point, you can think of it like this. Imagine I have a date with my wife. Me and her have planned. I don't have time to get home. And me and her are going to meet up at some of our, one of our favorite restaurants downtown. And we're going to meet at 5.30 for dinner. And she's perfectly on time. And I'm late. And she waits and she waits and she waits. And 15 minutes goes by. 30 minutes goes by. Next thing you know, an hour goes by. And she can't get a hold of me. What do you think, how do you think she's going to feel when I walk into the restaurant at 6.30? Any husbands help me out here? Anybody have an idea, you know, how, how your wife might feel? But, but okay, so I think we agree she's going to be, to say it lightly, disappointed, okay? And, and I come in and I say, hey, you know what? I was perfectly on time. I was here going to be here for 525, and I saw this man attacking this woman. And I pulled over, and I got on my car, and I yelled at him, and he ran, and I chased him down, and, and I jumped on him, and I tackled him, and I held my knee to his, you know, not his neck. Sorry, I shouldn't even say that. It just came into my head. Uh, but I tackled him. I... I apprehended the man, I called the police, I helped, and, you know, and all of a sudden, her view of me is probably going, you know, going up, and, and I'm being justified in my lateness. That, that it doesn't change that I was late. It doesn't change that I, I missed our appointment. It doesn't change that I violated something in our relationship, but because of the actual story, what happened, my lateness begins to be justified. Now, I'd say in the same way that it's like when, when God looks upon us, because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross, he looks at us very differently than had Jesus' sacrifice not been made. It doesn't change that I've sinned. It doesn't, it doesn't make my behavior and what I've done right. But because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, God considers me righteous. Simply through trusting that that was enough. Simply through putting my faith in him and his love over my good behavior. Over the works of the law. See, because we all try to justify ourselves in many ways. We all try to appear as righteous and good in this world in many ways. Would you agree? And maybe commonly in our culture today, it's not the law of God being held up. But there's a law out there. There's an expectation of what your behavior should look like. And, you know, maybe commonly, we said this last week, people will seek to justify themselves through having lots of money, looking good. Uh, success in their career, right? All these different types of common things. Or maybe we try to justify ourselves through our taking up this social cause 
or, or holding this political position or that political position. Or maybe we seek to look good in the world by having no political position. Ah, it's all good, you know, whatever. We, we, we grab hold to try to grab hold of anything so that we will look good before people around us, so we will justify ourselves and appear righteous. Or maybe we try to justify ourselves through our religious piety, our moralism. I think the most insidious form of self-justification is religious legalism. Because in religious legalism, we, we embrace this idea that if I will just behave this way or that way or check this list, that God will love and accept me. And the big problem with it is that it sends a message to the world that we all as humans are quick to receive. The idea that if God's going to love and accept you, you better jump through this hoop and that hoop and this hoop and that hoop and on and on it goes. And it's dangerous, and it's harmful. I believe it actually feeds into the reason why many people reject even the idea of God. Because if that's what God is like, and that's the message we're sending to the world, you know, behave right before you're loved, behave right before you're accepted, be accepted based on your performance, You can never measure up. God's law is perfect. Right? So people go, it's just easier to say there is no God than live under that. What if we could show the world around us the true God? The one displayed in a crucified Messiah who dies on behalf of the sins of the world. I love that that Paul makes this statement. He says, what if in seeking to be justified, I'm found to be a sinner? Right? There is this idea you could say that Paul views himself, what he's saying here, and all of us as Jesus followers, as justified sinners. Yes, yes, sinners, yes, still sin, but justified in the sight of God. That's a very freeing, liberating perspective to live with. Because it doesn't require you to deny or pretend that you've not fallen short. But yet know that despite your shortcoming, despite your sin, you're loved, you're valued, You're worth dying for. It's a game changer. It's two radically different operating systems. Right? Behave good to be accepted or be accepted and have good behavior flow from the acceptance. What happens when we, when we seek to live according to the law? When we live a performance 
oriented life, when we pursue justification through being good. How do you guys think that works out for us? Can anybody in the room speak from experience? Paul says in verse 19, for through the law I died to the law. For through a performance-oriented pursuit of justification, I died through that performance-oriented pursuit of justification. It crushed me. It killed me. It destroyed me. When we live underneath that, it crushes us. And guess what? We inevitably crush those around us through that standard as well. Because we walk around the world holding up this standard of what everybody's supposed to live up to and behave according to. And not only are you crushed under it, but anybody around you feels crushed by it. Does it sound like a gospel culture? Good. I'm glad we're clear on that. I think it's that type of religious legalism that easily creeps back in. Like Peter starts rolling with it, being like, no, I'm not going to eat at the table with those guys because he's concerned about what these other guys are going to think about it, right? It easily creeps back into our life. And that's why we need to be saturated in the gospel again and again and again and again. It never ends. Our need to be filled with it and to be reformed by it and shaped by it never stops. It's an ongoing process. But what about a culture that's built upon the idea that we're all justified sinners? You know, the gospel does call you to acknowledge that you're more sinful than you ever dared to admit. But at the same time, the gospel tells you that you're more loved than you ever imagined. And these two realities are held in tension. So much so that every time Paul opens up a letter, pretty much, he says, to the saints. He doesn't, he doesn't go, hey, you sinners in Galatia, or you sinners in Ephesus, or you sinners in Corinth, to the saints. Morning, saints. Much loved by God. Have you sinned this week? I have. You're loved. You're accepted. You're drawn close, not pushed away. What would happen to the culture of a community that keeps that reality at its core? I think sometimes we want to see social reform in the world. Anybody want to see social reform in the world? But social reform requires personal reform. Personal transformation precedes social transformation. It always comes back. That's why it comes back to these truths. Here, Paul is addressing this social problem of, of these guys distancing themselves 
from these certain people. And then he gets up and he says, we know we're not justified by our good performance. We are justified by faith in Jesus. We can't lose hold of that. So when that thing stirs up in you to want to recommend yourself to God through your good behavior, just remind yourself of the gospel and why Jesus went to the cross. You know, Paul says, if I rebuild it, I become a lawbreaker for sure. Don't rebuild the law in your life. Don't rebuild that performance-oriented justification. Embrace the cross. You know, Paul makes this statement, and you can really know the point of a letter if you go to the end. Let's read the end of Galatians. Galatians 6, I'm going to start in verse 12, and he says this. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. When he says that to the Israel of God, he's saying like those who actually put their trust in the promise, those who actually put their trust in the finished work of the cross and the love of God displayed in Jesus, not in their good works and their good deeds are the true Israel of God, the true people of God, the children of God, the chosen. It has nothing to do with performance. It has to do with his love. So how do we live in this new operating system that's to mark the culture of the church? Well, it's right here at the end pretty much of what we read earlier. I'm going to read it again, verse 19 of 20 of chapter 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Famous words right here. And even before I finish reading them, just pause and point out that these famous, famous words were birthed out of Paul pretty much saying, hey, don't distance yourself from these people. It was birthed out of this actual situation that required correction. And he said this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he's saying, I am not going to live trusting in my good behavior and my good performance. I will live trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. My trust and my faith is not in me, it's in him. We don't, we don't have this trust and faith because we get our, our doctrinal statement all in order and can recite, you know, the truths of Galatians just right. Our faith and our trust is in how good he has shown himself to be in the cross. 
the crucified Savior of the world who loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's super important that Paul wrote those words in past tense. Not the Son of God who loves me, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's this finality to it, this completion to it, this sense in which what he did, what he already did on the cross and already displayed shows me that he loves me. He did it before I got in line. He drew near to give himself for me while I was still a sinner. This simple truth has the power to change the world. Because I want you to see this, okay? All of what we're looking at here today, this idea of justified by faith, like I said, it came out of this situation where these Jewish believers were drawing back and pulling away from their non-Jewish brothers and sisters. What I would say to you is that when this idea of being justified by faith is deep in the core of our hearts and the culture of our community, instead of drawing back, we draw near. Instead of distancing, we close the gap. We, when, we, when we see brokenness, when we see sin, when we see failure, when we see difference, we draw near versus push back. Our world needs people who draw near. This goes beyond just the walls of the church. This is to flow out from us. We get to carry gospel culture throughout the city of Victoria. Will we be a people who draw back or draw near? Well, the, the, the answer to that, I believe, has less to do with will you behave right? Will you start drawing near? Come on, church, just draw near. It's like, no, we believe the gospel. We believe that you are not accepted by God because of your good behavior, because of your perfect record, because of your law keeping, but because of him who loved you and gave himself for you. Our justification before God is not based on us. It's based on him. Let's say this together. I'm so grateful I've got nothing to prove. I'm so grateful... God loves me. Never gets old, guys. It's my invitation to you today, and I would go as far to say it's not my invitation, it's the Lord's. Is to forsake your trust and your good behavior and your right decisions 
and put it in him who loved you and gave himself for you. It's not a one-time thing. It's not, oh, yeah, I did that 30 years ago in a meeting when, you know, it's, it's, it's every day. Lord, I forsake my trust in my good behavior, and I receive your love for me displayed in the crucified king of the universe who gave himself, not just for everyone else, for me. Let's pray. I'll let you guys go. Jesus, we say that you are beautiful. The good news that announces to us what you've done is beautiful. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to make it real to us, that it really would be beautiful to us. Lord, that we would find ourselves enamored with you, in awe of you, transformed by the truth of the gospel, that we would be a family of people whose lives embody the truth of the gospel, who our interactions as a community would be this gospel culture that declares to the city of Victoria that God is love that God is good, that he draws near, not draws back. Bless us with this truth this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.